All right. Good to see you guys. Good evening. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1. This evening we're going to start in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so on the sixth day of creation, as the crowning work of his creation, God created mankind, which... At this time, consisted only of two people, Adam and Eve. But it says in verse 28 that God blessed them. Now, I believe this is more than just a, a passive pronouncement of blessing. Or in other words, you know, it, it, God didn't simply bestow a verbal blessing upon them. It was more than that. I think one author put it well when he said, and I quote, What this suggests is that he conferred well-being on them. He caused them to prosper. He made them happy, end quote. Well, in God's presence, there's fullness of joy. We know that God uh, would commune with them uh, physically. He would come down and talk to them face to face. So uh, they were daily in his presence, uh, literally. And uh, in his presence, there's fullness of joy. Uh, But Paul the Apostle talks about how God is, you know, it says that God blessed them. He blessed them in many ways, with his fellowship was a big way, of course, but the creation he used to bless them. And Paul the Apostle said that God has richly given us all things in creation to enjoy. <laughs> you know, some would say, yes, I enjoy God's creation every day when I snort it and smoke it. No, that's not what we're talking about, okay? Some people think that just because it grows in nature, it's okay to ingest it and use it to get high. And somehow that sanctified because it's natural. Well, some of the most toxic substances known to man grow naturally in the wild. Just because it grows in the wild doesn't mean God wants us to stick it in our bodies, right? So we have to be careful. All that God gave to us that he intended for us to use in the right way is for our pleasure and our good. There are things, of course, that are in nature that Satan has perverted and people have used to now get high and destroy lives and so on. But the idea that God wants us to prosper, he wants us to be blessed. In Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18, here's what Solomon said. He said, here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. You know, God has created us with a desire to be productive a desire to work hard and achieve things and to build things and to just, you know, create, because he's a creative God. God uh, has given us the desire to work hard and to be creative. And those folks who work hard and make something of themselves and uh, and um, become wealthy, we'll say, 
they should not be guilty of that as long as it's been done legally and so on. I mean, God never looks down on hard work, and if it results in uh, riches on this earth, praise God. Bless God. Enjoy what God has given you. Uh, That's how God has designed it. But today, uh, that's being twisted, isn't it? In our culture, um, recently, uh, those who have worked hard, and I'm talking about those who have done things legally, who have not made their money by, um, uh, by uh, you know, taking advantage of others. But those who have worked hard, started businesses, and wound up prospering and all, today, it's almost like they're being, well, it's not almost, they are being vilified by a lot of people. If you're wealthy and you've worked hard to get that wealth, a lot of times people look at you as a villain. You know, like you're the bad guy. And conversely, today laziness is becoming more of a virtue, I think. Uh, the welfare system, which is designed to be a safety net for those who really need it to get over a hump, has become now a way of life for many. And they recognize, well, why should I work if the government will give it to me? And so that, see, it's kind of a strange inversion today. But, you know, that's not how God designed us in the beginning. God designed us to work hard. He designed us to... Um, to prosper and be blessed. Nothing wrong with that. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So, first of all, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with people, which becomes one of the main reasons He created them, male and female, for the purpose of procreation. Now, the Bible has always said that every human being on the face of the earth that has ever lived has descended from these two people, from Adam and Eve. However, thanks to the Human Genome Project, science has now confirmed that this is also true. They have shown by studying the human genes, the Genome Project, uh, they have traced every human being on the planet back to two original parents. Uh, You know, not that they call them Adam and Eve, Okay, Mr. Gorilla and Mrs. Gorilla, I'm sure is what they would call them. But we know what the Bible says, all right? It just proves that, again, be patient with scientists and things because they eventually catch up to what the Bible has been saying for thousands of years, as we have said. But now science has proven that uh, the whole human race is descended from two uh, people, one man, one woman. Uh, this, of course, means that there aren't different races of people on earth. There's only one. In fact, when those working on the Human Genome Project first published a draft of their findings in 2000, the New York Times reported, and I'm quoting them, the researchers had unanimously declared there is only one race, the human race. Now, some would say at this point, then why are there some people who are white, and some people who are black, if we're all just part of the same race. Well, it has to do, as we learned in our uh, foundations class, uh, Ken Ham, and all we we studied that uh, in one of the sessions, but it has to do with different amounts of skin pigmentation, a brown pigment called melanin. We all have it, by the way. Every human being has this pigment in their skin in different amounts, resulting in different shades of brown. Even white people (laughs) aren't really white. Uh, We also have this pigment in our skin, but not as much as others do. The ones that have higher concentrations, their skin is darker, more brown or even black. Uh, But the point is that mankind isn't made up of 
the white race, the brown race, the yellow race, the black race. We are all the human race. And God loves us all the same. He has no respecter of persons. It's the devil who divides. It's the devil who wants to create prejudice. It's the, it, you know, and the church should be the one place in the world where all of that falls by the wayside when we accept Christ. This should be the place where people of all different races, all different socioeconomic backgrounds can come and just be one in Christ. I, I heard a sad statistic years ago about how that in the South years ago, they used to say 11 o'clock on Sunday morning was the most segregated hour of the week because everybody just gravitated to their churches that, you know, white people, the white churches, black folks, the black churches. And uh, that's sad because I love to see the diversity in the body of Christ. I think it says to the world when they walk in here, if somebody unsaved walks in and sees the diversity, sees us loving on each other, sees, you know, uh, black folks, white folks, Asian, I mean, just all kinds of different people coming together and, and just as one. I think it's a great witness to the world. It shows that in Christ we are all one family, okay? Um, but the second thing God decreed was that he was putting mankind over creation to have dominion over it. So man wasn't made for the creation. The creation was made for man. In other words, God gave us his creation to bless us and to benefit us as human beings. Not that man would be a slave to the environment as we're seeing today. I mean, God made the creation for man today. The cre- man is made for the creation. In other words, we are being held hostage by radical environmentalists who believe that, you know, we have to you know, be a slave to the environment. And there are folks, in fact, I saw an interesting, uh, somebody, um, let me just say this, there are, there are environmentalists and scientists who have said that they, they believe the best thing for planet Earth would, would be if mankind was gone, you know, wiped out in some kind of a plague destroyed by some kind of natural disaster. I actually saw uh, some footage of one of these meetings. Scientists, environmentalists, somebody snuck in with a hidden camera and was filming it. I caught about a minute or two of it. And they were saying, one guy was talking, he said, uh, the best thing that could happen to this planet is if mankind was wiped out. And they all started clapping and cheering. I'm thinking, good heavens. Why could they even think that? Because they're naturalists, guys. Naturalists. Naturalists believe that there is no God. Everything came about through natural processes. You guys, you're just animals. Just a different species of animal. You have evolved higher than the other animals, but you are no different. You have no more value than they do. And you, as, as homo sapiens, have gotten too greedy. You, you're using too many resources. You are, are wiping out... Other species, you need to go. In fact, every summer, and my family lives in California, but every summer, some radical environmental wacko will start uh, these uh, brush fires that cause the wildfires to rage and destroy houses and, and, and people die. Why do they do this? Because they're, envi- they're, they're uh, environmental terrorists is what they're called. They're upset because... Uh, Housing developments have been have been built in areas that were typically woodlands and and uh, forests and things, and so because human beings are encroaching on the environment of these animals, 
well, I'm going to make a statement and burn the houses down. This is the mindset that we're dealing with today. It's interesting how that our government will uh, fine you sometimes thousands of dollars if you purposely uh, or even accidentally destroy an endangered animal, whether it be a little bug or a mouse or something, frog, but they will pay you to abort your children. That's where we are today. It's a very sick world we're living in. And it's a result of sin. And the Bible tells us that as we got closer to Jesus' return, there would be return, there would be a moral inversion. People would call good evil and evil good. And we're seeing that today. But man was given dominion by God over his creation to be the guardian over it, to use it for his benefit, but never again to but never to abuse it. I somewhere between turning the environment into a god and then just trashing it indiscriminately, there's got to be a happy medium. I mean, I am not a radical environmentalist, but I don't want to see the planet polluted and destroyed either. There, there has to be a balance somewhere. Christians, we understand that God gave the creation to, to man to tend it, to watch over it. Yes, to be blessed by it, to use it for his benefit, but to take care of it. When I see the oceans being polluted and I see garbage everywhere, when I see that man is not taking care of the environment but is destroying our planet, uh, that's very tragic to me. And, and I believe God will hold us accountable. So there is a balance, all right? But something else we need to understand from God's original design for his creation, and that is originally, you know, there were no meat eaters. There were only herbivores. Verse 29, And God said, See, I have given you every herb. And he's talking to Adam and Eve. I have given you every, every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, uh, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. So you see, right here, God is saying in the beginning, uh, mankind and all of the other creatures that God had created, the birds of the air, uh, the stuff, well, not in the sea, obviously, but, uh, well, yeah, probably that in the sea plankton, they, they plankton and other, uh, other kind of um, uh, green algae and things like that, plants and all. Uh, but originally, there were no uh, carnivores. There were only herbivores because death didn't come into the human race until Adam's sin. Again, Romans 5, verse 12. And therefore, animals didn't eat each other until after the fall. And uh, that's when they became carnivores. Before that, before the fall, uh, all the animals uh, were herbivores. They were tame. All right? There were no uh, animals preying on each other. Uh, I would imagine that lions and, and lambs grazed together side by side. That was before the fall. Now, in the kingdom age, we're going to revert back to that. Because you read in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 35, it talks about how that the lion and the lamb will lie down and you won't, you know, you won't have these uh, ferocious creatures. Children will be able to play next to uh, what used to be poisonous snake holes and put their, put their hand in the, in the adder's den and not be harmed. And, and it's going to be a different world during the kingdom age, more like it was before the fall. And so uh, we'll uh, 
enjoy that. Uh, I've always wanted to see a little kid taking a lion by the mane and walking it around like a big puppy. Uh, so that's coming. But uh, verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made. And indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So God kind of steps back now from the canvas of his creation, you might say, and looks at all he had made and said, it's all very good. Very good. Well, it wasn't going to last too long that way, but initially, very good. Chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now let me just say this first of all. And that is the first three verses of chapter 2 I think really belong at the end of chapter 1. But, you know, again, the chapter divisions were not inspired. So when you read your Bibles, you know, it's, it's a good idea to read... Uh, the first verse of the next chapter to see if it maybe fits, or the first verse or two or three, of the next chapter to see if it fits in with the last thought of the previous chapter, because you might cut off a thought and not get the full impact of what God is saying. So here it's obvious that the the first three verses of chapter two really belong uh, at the end of chapter one. But when it says that God rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done, look, It isn't implying that God rested because he was tired or weary. We know that Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, The creator of the ends of the earth, he neither faints nor grows weary. Look, God doesn't need to rest in the sense of rejuvenating himself or replenishing his energy because, listen, when God works, there is no loss or dissipation of energy. Therefore, he cannot get fatigued. Remember what God said to the psalmist, Psalm Uh, 121 verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel, I should say the psalmist speaking of the Lord, he who keeps Israel, listen, shall neither slumber nor sleep. Our God never sleeps. He's always watching. He's always uh, looking after us. The Hebrew word translated rested in chapter 2 verse 2 is Shabbat. Shabbat. Now if you go to Israel today, and uh, Saturday rolls around, they will call it the Shabbat. It's the Sabbath, okay? And uh, the Hebrew word simply means rested. Rested, to cease uh, from activity. In fact, it means in this context with regard to God that he ceased from his creative work. He wasn't tired. He just stopped creating. Why did he stop? Because he was done. He was done, all right? He had completed all creation, So there was nothing more for him to create. Therefore, he rested from creating. Now, the seventh day came to be known as the Sabbath. But there are several things about the Sabbath that we need to understand. And um, there is a a debate uh, that's been going on for a long time, but it's, it's kind of gaining momentum lately. And it's this whole thing about the Sabbath, which actually includes the moral law. We'll talk about it in a moment. Um, But are we still under the Sabbath? There was just a big debate not long ago, a couple weeks ago. Uh, A couple of guys uh, on on the Internet, uh, formal debate was actually a big thing, 
uh, two and a half hour debate. Uh, are Christians under the Sabbath law? Well, let's look at this, okay? Because here uh, we see the seventh day where God rested. And uh, even though it says God rested on the seventh day, listen, the word Sabbath isn't used. Isn't used. In fact, the first time the word Sabbath appears in the scriptures is in Exodus 16, verse 23, when God gave it as a law to Israel. In fact, we read in Exodus 31, verse 16, that God gave the Sabbath to Israel as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, every covenant, and the Bible says our God is a covenant-keeping God. A covenant is, well, kind of like a contract. But the word covenant comes from a Hebrew word that means to cut. And they used to actually enter into a covenant with each other by killing an animal, cutting it in two, putting the parts on the ground and passing through those parts which would ratify the covenant. It was a blood covenant. Okay? But our God is a covenant-keeping God. With every covenant He has ordained, He has given a sign that goes along with the covenant. Now, when God gave the Noahic covenant by saying He would never again destroy the earth with a flood, what was the sign He gave of that covenant? The rainbow. Okay? When God made a covenant with Abraham, that he would give the land of Israel, Canaan, to him and his descendants forever. What was the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham? Circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath. Okay, It was a covenant that God made with Israel. In fact, in Exodus 31, verse 16, we read, Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as, listen, a perpetual covenant, or in other words, as a sign of the covenant God made with the nation. The Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, and as such it was only intended for Israel. For Israel. Now, there are many, as I just said, who believe that since God singles out the seventh day for special mention here in Genesis 2, verse 3, when it says that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, they say, well, look, God singles out the Sabbath, he he singles out the seventh day, I should say, and and blesses it and so on. Um, Listen, this predated the Mosaic Covenant by 2,500 years, which means they claim that what it says is that the Sabbath transcends the Mosaic Covenant, and applies to all mankind, even Christians under the New Covenant. And I can understand where you might get that from this. The Sabbath shows up early in the record, the seventh day, even though it's not called the Sabbath at this point. It's simply called, said God rested on the seventh day. Later on we know it was called the Sabbath. But I can understand why they would maybe feel this way. All right. However, we have to then corroborate that with other places in the Old and New Testament to determine, all right, is that re- that's a theory, but is it really biblical? Did God really intend the Sabbath to be for all mankind, and including Christians living under the New Covenant? Well, nowhere in the Bible that I can see in the Old Testament did God ever give the Sabbath as a law to Gentiles. He only gives it as a law to Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. Man at this point, or excuse me, 
for that matter, when it says that God rested on the seventh day, he doesn't apply that to Adam. Nor is man even mentioned in connection with this seventh day rest. Man at this point didn't need to rest from his labor because he didn't need to work to feed himself before the fall. And even though it says that God rested from his creative work on the seventh day and blessed it and sanctified it, listen, he gave no mandate here that man was to observe the Sabbath. Now, he had just gotten done commanding Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He had just commanded that the creation be subject to them. It wasn't that God was shy about passing out commandments at this point. And listen, if the Sabbath was for all people, this would have been the perfect place to add one more commandment. And I'm giving the Sabbath to mankind as a perpetual day of rest from this point forward. Very simple, would have put all the confusion to rest. And by, by confusion, I mean when people don't want to just take what the Bible says plainly because they've got this idea that they've been taught or picked up somewhere that, you know, the Sabbath is for everybody. Well, prove it, all right? Prove it. If it's for everyone, I'll go along with it. Show me in Scripture, though, where it says the Sabbath was given by God to all mankind to observe as a perpetual law. I can't find it anywhere. If you find something, please come up and show me. Right at this point, some would say, well, then why did God sanctify the seventh day and bless it if it wasn't to be observed as a day of rest? Look, I didn't say the seventh day wasn't to be observed as a day of rest at all. All I'm saying is that it was not given to all mankind as a law to obey, but rather was intended by God as a principle to be observed. Look, the idea of taking one day out of seven to rest is a good thing, right? I mean, back then, they worked hard after the fall, I mean. After the fall, they had to tend the ground and bring forth their food in the sweat of their brow. They No you know, equipment like we have today, power tools, diesel-powered uh, uh, tractors and things. They had to do everything by hand, by animal. It was hard work. You needed to take a day off to rest. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's just God's wisdom as a good principle. But at this point, it was not a law universally. Author Warren Worsby put it this way, suddenly, quote, Jehovah is the God of time as well as the Lord of eternity. It was he who created time and established the rotation of the planets and their orbits around the sun. It was he who marked out the seven-day week and set aside one day for himself. Every living thing that God has created lives a day at a time, except humans made in God's image. People rush around in frantic, in the frantic rat race of life, always planning to rest, but never seeming to fulfill their plan. It has been said that most people in our world are being crucified between two thieves, the regrets of yesterday and the worries about tomorrow. That's why they can't enjoy today. Relying on modern means of transportation and communication, we try to live two or three days at a time, only to run headlong against the creation cycle of the universe, and the results are painful and often disastrous, unquote. In other words, God has designed us that we are to work six days, take a day off. Again, not a law, but a good solid principle. 
But once again, prior to Adam's fall, as one author said, prior to Adam's fall, he said there was little, if any, distinction between labor and leisure. So the pattern of six days work and one day's rest would have little significance until after Adam sinned, end quote. So again, we're, we're just before the fall, things were different. After the fall, these things came into place. Now, there is something interesting that needs to be pointed out here. Uh, notice there is something significant that the Holy Spirit purposely leaves out when he mentions the seventh day. And I encourage you guys, always read your Bibles like detectives. The Holy Spirit doesn't, you know, if every jot and tittle has a purpose, you believe me when I tell you, words matter. What the Holy Spirit says and sometimes leaves out gives sometimes more insights than what he says at times. Now here, he leaves out something, I think, significant. When it comes to the six days of creation, they all end with the words or similar words, and the evening and the morning were the first day, second day, third day, etc. We see this in verses 5, 8, 13, 19, 23, and verse 31. However, those words are not connected with the seventh day. What is the Holy Spirit saying to us by this omission? omission? Well, I believe what he is saying is that God only intended to create. He only, his creative work was, was limited to a certain time. All right? He intended to create for six 24-hour days. And when he had finished creating, he rested. After each day of creation, it says in the evening and morning were the first day, second day, and so on. We come to the seventh day, he doesn't say that. All right? He doesn't say that. The seventh day, it seems, began a rest that he intended to continue indefinitely. Think about that. The seventh day, after God finished this work of creation, the seventh day began what I believe was supposed to be an indefinite period of rest. Pastor John MacArthur put it this way, said, and I quote, The rest that commenced on, the, on, on day seven could have continued indefinitely if it had not been interrupted by Adam's sin. Everything was in a state of pristine perfection. There was no decay, there was no sickness or pain or death. There was no labor in the sense that we think of labor in a fallen world. Adam would have lived in a perpetual Sabbath rest if he had not fallen into sin. Everything in creation was perfectly delightful, and God was enjoying it all, as were all his creatures. What a paradise it must have been. Only sin could have interrupted such a rest. And as, as we shall see in the following chapter, that is precisely what happened. End quote. Look, God rested on the seventh day. I believe it was God's design, although he knew what was coming. I believe it was his design to let the seventh day rest go on indefinitely. But when man sinned, guess what? God had to go to work again. This time, he would begin the work of the second creation, which, by the way, took a lot longer than six days. As we've already seen, the work of the second creation also referred to by Paul as the new creation, 
is another way of saying the work of redemption. The work of redemption climaxed at the cross of Jesus Christ when he spoke these words, it is finished and will fully be completed after the thousand-year millennial kingdom when everyone who would be redeemed will have been redeemed. Turn to Revelation 21. I mean, we, we can't even get our minds around this right now, all right? But Revelation 21, starting in verse 3. John said, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, What? It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You see, we have moved from time into eternity. All of human history has now been wrapped up. Everybody that was going to receive Christ, everybody that would be redeemed has been redeemed. We move now from the struggles, even the millennial kingdom is not a a kingdom free of sin. It will be greatly reduced. But even during the thousand year reign of Christ, there will still be sin and death, although very rare. But now we move from time to into eternity. Every rebel has been judged and sent to hell. Every person who has bowed the knee to Christ and received him as Lord and Savior has been glorified. And we step from this dimensionality into whatever that eternal state is. And we now live for eternity in a place where we can't even begin to wrap our minds around. I don't even think we can comprehend what that... I think it's a whole new dimensionality. I know one thing, we'll have our glorified bodies. We won't get sick. We won't grow weary. We won't suffer pain. And there'll be no more death. And folks, that's the work of the new creation. The first creation, the physical creation, took six days. 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1 speak of it. The new creation, the work of redemption... And that took the rest of the Bible to speak of in all of human history up until death is conquered once and for all. And we move from this, we move from time into eternity. Now, once again, and I, I, you know, I hate to belabor this, and for some of you, you're thinking, you know, this is really doesn't kind of, scratching where I'm itching tonight, but, but let me just say this, okay? Sorry, uh, put it that way, but here's the thing, okay? Um, as a Bible teacher, I want to make sure that we cover uh, these things well enough where you have a working knowledge. This is a big debate today, this whole Sabbath thing, okay? And of course, you can't speak of the Sabbath 
without speaking of the other nine commandments, which are altogether called the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Are we as Christians still under the Ten Commandments as a law now, as a law? Of course, the real issue is the Sabbath because that's the one, you know, no Christian thinks it's okay to lie and steal and commit adultery and dishonor your parents and so on. It's that Sabbath law. That's the sticking point. And that's the, where the debate rages. But once again, let me state before we move on that the Sabbath was never given to mankind as a, as a universal law. It was only given to Israel under the Mosaic law. For Christians under the New Covenant, the people ask, what purpose does the law serve after I give my... You know, okay, here's the big question. I'm a Christian. I receive Christ. What purpose does the law now have in my life? I'm a believer in Christ, okay. What part does the law have in my life now that I'm saved? Are you ready? No part, no part, no purpose. Underline the word law, okay. Law is different, okay. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll bring this around full circle, okay. I am not saying that when I say the law has no purpose in the life of a Christian, I'm not saying that it means that we can be lawless. I'm just saying that laws speak of punishment if disobeyed, right? Uh, we are not under a punitive system anymore. We are saved. The law was fulfilled by Jesus in his sinless life of perf- in his sinless life of perfect obedience to his Father's will. Remember what Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, verse 17. He said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. Fulfill. We are not saying the law has no purpose. The purpose of the law was to be fulfilled in Christ. Jesus fulfilled. He didn't set it aside. He didn't. Uh, he didn't um, come against it. He was the only one who truly fulfilled it in his perfect life of obedience. Look, the law could never make me righteous. It could only condemn me for breaking it. I mean, all the law can do is, if you break it, declare you guilty. Okay? It can't do any, It can only condemn you and me. It can't make us righteous. Paul said this in Romans 3, verse 20. He said, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Um, for by the law is the what? The knowledge of sin. Let me read it again. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. In other words, will go to heaven, have their sins removed, go to heaven. For by the law comes the knowledge of sin, not the presence of righteousness just comes condemnation points out that you've broken the law you're guilty and so on again the purpose of the law was to take us by the hand like a tutor and bring us to jesus how by teaching us that we could never ever keep those laws perfectly we, we could never keep those laws perfect why well, keep most of them sorry uh keeping most of them is not going to get you into heaven James said, if you keep all of them but violate one, you're a lawbreaker, you're guilty. The idea is, look, if people have this concept, well, I'm not perfect, nobody is, but I think I'm good enough. 
when I stand before God on the day of judgment, I'll let him know all the good stuff I've done. I know he'll let me in. Uh, wrong. Okay? Wrong. God knows you and I even better than we know ourselves because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. There's a lot of stuff that, that I do that are, it's in my heart that I don't even know about. I think I'm a pretty good guy. God looks at me and goes, oh boy, if you only saw what I see. <laughs> and, and that's the point. I can't confess my sins if I don't know they're there. That's what conviction's all about. That's why it's good to take spiritual inventory of ourselves uh, often. Lord, is there anything hindering my relationship with you? Is there anything that's kind of holding me back and being all that I can be for you? Now, if you pray that prayer, he'll reveal things to you. And then what you do is you got to get them right. See, but a lot of times I don't even know what's in my heart. It's so yucky down there. And, of course, I always think I'm the best guy in the world, right? We all do. But God sees differently. And God knows that, you know, we're not good people. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not perfect, but I think I'm a good person. The Bible says if you're not perfect, you're not a good person. There's only one perfect person who ever lived. That was Jesus. That's why he said that uh, no one is good but God. He didn't say no one is as good as God. We all would say, man, I know I'm not as good as God, but I'm pretty good. No, no one is good but God because God defines goodness as moral perfection. None of us are morally perfect. We have all sinned and fall short of God's perfect standard. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the purpose of the law was not to make us righteous. It was to show us our sin. Every time we broke the law, it would condemn us. After a while, the idea was I'd get so frustrated and so, uh, so you know, tired of trying to do something I know I couldn't possibly do. That I would come to God broken and say, God, I can't do it. I can't get to heaven by being a good person. I'm just, I'm not good enough. Is there another way? Yes. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. But Galatians 3, verse 24 and 5 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified, and not by the law, but by faith. But after faith has come, listen, we are no longer under a tutor. After a tutor has done their job, we don't need them anymore. The law was a tutor that brought us to Christ. Once we embrace Christ for his righteousness by faith, we don't need the law anymore. I've used this example again. Let me, let me use it one more time. Um, again, once the law does its job and shows us our sin, our inability to keep the law for self-righteousness, and it drives us to Christ for his righteousness, the law or the purpose of the law has been fulfilled. Like the initial rockets, remember before they phased out the uh, space shuttle program? Okay. We've all seen that thing or those things take off, haven't we? And you see how that when they're on the launching pad and they've got, uh, the shuttle has got alongside of it two massive rockets. And they light these things up at one point and these things propel the space shuttle or propelled into outer space free from Earth's gravitational pull, and what happens when it got it, the space shuttle into orbit? What happened to those rockets? They were jettisoned. They had fulfilled their purpose. They got the space shuttle to the point 
They were designed to take it. Once they got it, they were no longer needed. They were jettisoned. The same is true with the law. The law was designed by God to drive us to Christ. Once it brings us to Christ and we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, we receive his righteousness. The law has done its job. It's jettisoned from the believer's life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul the Apostle said, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's true. If you use the law to show you your sin and drive you to Christ, it's good. If you use the law to try to be righteous, if you use the Ten Commandments to get to heaven, you're misusing the law, and it's not good. It will deceive you into thinking you're good enough. But Paul says, look, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners. Look, once you're a righteous person in Christ, you don't need the law. Why? Because God has written his laws in our hearts. And now we obey from the heart. Isn't that what the writer of the Hebrews said? The problem with the with laws written on tablets of stone, external tablets, they can't really produce... If you don't care about the consequences of breaking laws, those laws can't do any more. Look at our society. Look at the breakdown of society. It's due in big part to the fact that you got a lot of people today who don't care about the consequences. In fact, going into prison is often better than living where they're living. They get uh, three hots and a cot, as the saying goes. Okay, Three meals, place to stay for a lot of guys who are on the street, this is a better deal. So if you don't care about the consequences, external laws written on tablets of stone, not going to do any good. But when we, we receive Christ, God writes his laws in our hearts, and we desire to obey him from the heart. Much better. Whereas I used to have to obey God out of law, and if I didn't, there'd be consequences. Now I love the Lord, and I want to obey him from the heart out of that love. But Paul said in Romans 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law. Listen. He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. As Christians, we are now in Christ. And as such, we are partakers of everything Jesus accomplished. He fulfilled the law. And since we are in him, the law has been fulfilled in us as well. Look, nowhere in the New Testament is the church ever commanded to keep the Sabbath. On the contrary, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Now listen to what Paul says. In Colossians 2, starting in verse 16. And Paul was writing to a group of Gentile believers in Colossae who were being told that even though they were Gentiles, if they wanted to be saved, they had to become Jews first, be circumcised, keep the law of Moses, then they could believe on Christ and be saved and go to heaven. And Paul said, So let no one judge you in food or in drink. These would, of course, be the dietary laws under uh, the law uh, of Israel. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, 
or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Look, as we have already said many times before, a shadow contains no substance, but is cast by something or someone of substance. The Old Testament feasts and sacrifices and Sabbaths all pointed to Jesus, who is the substance. He said, the volume of the book is written of me. Speaking to the scriptures. However, once the reality has come, we no longer live in the shadow. We now live in Christ, who is the fulfillment of these things. They all pointed to Jesus. All the laws in the Old Testament really pointed to Jesus. He fulfilled them, and therefore now they are And for those of us who are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you're in Christ, then uh, you have fulfilled those laws as well because you're in Him. You see, there were those in Paul's day, like there are today. I like to tell you that the Judaizers are gone. They're still around. The Judaizers were those people who were trying to put Gentiles under the law. And we have Judaizers in the church today. And they mean well. They, they really believe this is what God's word is teaching. I don't see it that way. You can make your own decision. But we see that there were those in Paul's day who were trying to put Gentile Christians under the Mosaic law, condemning them for not keeping the Jewish feasts, including the Sabbath. But again, Paul made it clear in Galatians that believers are not under the law of Moses. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, It says that Christ is our Sabbath rest. See, it's not that we're uh, disobeying the Sabbath. It's just that it's been fulfilled in Christ. And he is our Sabbath rest, right? I mean, for the Christian who is in Christ, every day is a day of rest from our works, which couldn't get us into heaven. But now we rest in his completed work. We're in him resting in the work that he finished. He, He said it is finished on the cross. He did all the work. Now I can just rest every day in Him, rejoicing in what He has done for me by His grace. I can praise Him. I can worship Him. Every day for the believer is a Sabbath day of rest and worship. Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, listen to what he said. He said, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. Now, what is Paul saying? Well, he's kind of picking up on this. He's saying, look, some people want to single out one day as a day of worship, where they praise God and worship the Lord and so on, while other people say, no, every day for me is a day of worship. Paul's saying, look, everybody does it from their heart. Okay, so let's not get down on each other. If one person wants to set one day aside as a special day of worship and praise, fine. If it's in their heart to do it and they're honoring God, so be it. God looks favorably on that. Another person says, no, for me, every day is a day of praise and thanksgiving and worship. God looks at that and says, that pleases me as well. But the point I'm trying to make is this. If the Sabbath law was still in effect and applicable to Christians or the church, Paul wouldn't have taken such a lax position uh, on those who didn't set aside one day. He just says, look, you don't have to set aside one day. If you, I mean, you, can, you, you can worship God every day. You don't have to set aside one day. Well, if the Sabbath law was still in effect, 
Paul would have said, look, you have to set aside one day. The Sabbath is a day above all the others. He didn't say that. He treated every day as a Sabbath. He said, look, whatever. I mean, you know, as long as you're worshiping God from the heart, it doesn't matter if you set aside one day or you want to worship God every day. But notice he didn't make it a point to say, yes, there is a special day. It's called the Sabbath. We all have to observe it. In fact, when the church was born, right from the very beginning, Christians in the early church didn't worship God on Saturday. They worshiped God on what? Sunday. The first day of the week. They called it the Lord's Day. Why? Because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so right from the very beginning, the church did not keep the Sabbath, even as a day of worship. They worshiped God on Sunday. But again, as we wrap this up, there are those Christians who believe that we are still under the moral law, including the Sabbath. And again, when I say the moral law, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. And they claim, and I've listened to them give their reasons for this, they claim that all the verses in the New Testament, we've just given you some of them, but all the verses in the New Testament that tell us we are no longer under the law, they say, well, that's speaking of the civil law and the ceremonial law, but not the moral law. We as Christians are still under the moral law. Now, you remember, of course, when God gave the law, it was divided into three categories. He had the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. The civil dealt with their civil life. The uh, ceremonial, or the ecclesiastical, dealt with their worship of God. And the moral law dealt with them personally in their relationship with God individually. But all of God's 613 commandments fell under one of these three categories. And so when Israel ceased being a nation, of course, the civil laws stopped because they were only for, you know, uh, society. When the temple was destroyed, the ceremonial laws came to an end because the temple was gone. So, yes, those two areas of the law did pass away. The question is, did the moral law pass away or is it still in force? Turn to Romans 7. I want to read you something. Remember now, the folks that argue that all the passages that we have just read and others like them that say the law is over with, we're not under the law anymore, they claim are speaking about the civil law, the ceremonial law, but not the moral law. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, they say is still in force. We as Christians are under that law or those moral laws. But in Romans chapter 7, listen to what Paul says here. He said in verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law of her husband as long as he lives. In other words, if she's married to a guy, well, that's a binding law. It's a binding contract or covenant. And she is bound to him as his wife as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him, Jesus, who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now, here is Paul. Here, Paul is using the seventh commandment of the moral law, or the Ten Commandments, 
as an illustration of how when a person dies, well, the law no longer applies to them. Now, he uses marriage as an example. A woman is married to a man. Of course, she can't marry somebody else. She'd be a polygamist. There would be a violation of the law. But if her husband dies, Paul goes on to say in Romans 7, she can marry again and not be an adulteress. Because let's face it, the law only affects a person when they're alive, doesn't it? Now, here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing. He says that once we've received Jesus, we have become dead to the moral law, which would include the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, because we're in Christ. Jesus died and rose again, and because we're in him, everything that he went through, we have been a partaker of. So in Christ, we have died to the law. And that has opened up uh, the, op- uh, the uh, opportunity for us to be married to Christ and be involved in a new covenant. Covenant not based on law, but based on grace. Now, that doesn't mean, as I have said before, that just because I'm not under the law doesn't mean I can live a lawless life either. You see, the New Testament says that as Christians, we are not under the law of Moses. That's true. But we are under a greater law, a law that James calls the royal law in James 2, verse 8. Why does he call it the royal law? Because it's a law that the children of the king live under in the new covenant. And the law of love is far superior. The law of love or the royal law is far superior to the law of Moses. As we have said before, it is so much better to obey out of love than out of law. When I my kids were little, I wanted them to obey me because they loved me. That was a great... For a, for a father, my, parent, my children obey me because they love me. That's the greatest thing in the world. But they knew if they didn't obey me out of love, they better obey me out of fear because there were going to be consequences, right? We have laws in our home. And if you violate the law, you have to suffer the consequence. And it's not pleasant, okay? Uh, but, you know, I love them too much to just let them be lawless. Now, before we were brought under the law of love, in other words, before we got saved, God says, look, I've got to try to control your life through external laws. Because you're not going to really obey me out of love. At this point, you're rebels. And I've got to control rebels through laws that have consequences attached to them. But once we become children of God, the Spirit was into our heart. He fills us with the love of God, a love for God. And therefore now we obey because we love the Lord. We obey because we love Him. And so as a Christian, every day is a Sabbath. Okay, Every day is a day of rest from our works to earn righteousness. Every day is the day that we rest from those works and worship our King. Now, I will end with one more quote from a pastor that kind of balances this out. We are not under the law anymore because, listen, again, laws speak of, of um, consequences. Laws are punitive. And, you know, in Christ there is no more punishment, there's no more condemnation. But I should now obey because I love the Lord. But with regard to the Sabbath, even though we're not under the Sabbath law any longer, Again, it's a good principle to live, especially as Americans, okay? We're running 100 miles an hour in every direction with our hair on fire, uh, 24-7. I mean, you know, it's good for us to understand the principle of the Sabbath. This pastor had this to say about the wisdom of, of observing the Sabbath as a practical principle rather than a punitive law. He said, and I quote, and we'll end with this. 
At the time the law was given, no culture had ever taken a day off work. In agrarian society, in agrarian societies, this would have been unthinkable. But here, in the very beginning of time, we see the institution of the Sabbath. But I don't need a Sabbath because I'm not tired, you might be thinking. Gang, God wasn't saying, woof, am I beat. This creating stuff is really draining. No, he was saying to you and me, I'm your father. And here's a key to navigate life successfully. Shut it down one day in seven. But I can get ahead if I just do a little bit more work on the seventh day. As an observer, as a Bible teacher, as a pastor, I tell you with surety that if you don't take a Sabbath day, it will catch up to you with either uh, it will catch up with you either mentally, emotionally, physically, or spiritually. Ever wonder how Samson could sleep through the looming of his hair? He was exhausted. I am convinced that many people, men in particular, find themselves sleeping in the lap of Delilah because they haven't kept the Sabbath. I'm convinced many people have physical problems they wouldn't have if they took one day in seven and said, I'm going to rest and relax, be refreshed and renewed. I'm convinced many people are seeing psychiatrists and taking pills because failing to take a Sabbath, they are, they're just mentally fried. I'm convinced many people have collapsed spiritually because the weekend finds them revving up the jet, the jet boats rather than finding renewal and refreshment in the Lord. By renewed gang, I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't do, by, by renewed, I'm not saying what you should or shouldn't do on the Sabbath day because that's where the Pharisees erred. Instead, I would just remind you that because God rested on the seventh day, uh, we get to as well. The principle he modeled on the seventh day of creation continues to be a healthy one for us today, end quote. Some words to think of, okay? Think about, meditate on that, all right? We need to rest. Uh, very hard is, we all got busy schedules. It's a good principle, though, to take a day off and just rest, spend some time in the Word, just meditate on the goodness of God. Let your body be renewed, all right? The Sabbath. May God give us grace to apply that. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that as we are moving our way through the first few chapters of Genesis in particular, where you laid down so much truth, so many wonderful principles, Lord, that actually not only our lives are to be built on, but all of human society is to be built upon and benefit from. And so, Lord, we ask for grace because everybody in this room violates that principle. We want to work seven days a week when we should be taking one day just to rest and to draw close to you. We would be healthier physically, mentally, and spiritually if we did. Give us grace, Lord. Father, we thank you that we are no longer under the law. But we are under a greater law than that, which is the law of love. Give us grace to draw close to you and to do all that we do out of a deep and abiding love for you. Father, we thank you. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.